This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, it's Guy here. So, you know, we're all pretty used to the idea of storing our stuff in the cloud, right? Like our files and our photos and our music, it all lives up there somewhere. But when Jennifer Hyman launched Rent the Runway, she essentially wanted our clothing to live in the cloud, too. So she created a website with this huge inventory of women's clothing that you never had to own. You would just rent it and send it back. Jen calls it a closet in the cloud. Here's a story of how she and her partner built Rent the Runway. This episode first ran in August of last year. I said, you know, we should really call Diane von Furstenberg, the famous fashion designer. Fast forward a few weeks and we're driving to the second meeting. And her assistant calls and says, Diane no longer wants to see you. She's not interested in this idea. And I said, oh yeah, um, we're just around the corner. Like, we'll, we'll just drop by for a second. And again, her assistant very firmly said, she doesn't want to see you. What do you not understand? And I said, oh, we're cutting off, we're cutting off. And I hung up. And then I sped down the West Side Highway and we were at her office and we just showed up. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how two women who wanted high fashion but couldn't afford the price tag decided to make it possible to rent the runway. So Rent the Runway is now one of the hottest fashion companies in the U.S. It's growing like crazy. It's doing more than $100 million a year in revenue. And it has something like 1,200 employees. But given that its core product is designer dresses, you might be surprised to discover, as I was, that just 10 of its employees work in the fashion department. Most of the rest, well, they work for a technology company because that's actually what Rent the Runway is. Now, the way it works is you go online or you go to the app and, well, you rent a dress, a dress that might cost thousands of dollars to buy, except you only pay a small fraction of that and you get to look fabulous for one night. And then in the morning after you've recovered, you mail it back. It's kind of like Zipcar meets Netflix meets Zappos, if that makes any sense. Anyway, the co-founders, Jen Hyman and Jennifer Fleiss, came up with the idea when they met in business school. And as you will hear, the path to building their company was fraught with all kinds of challenges, among them rampant sexism and even harassment. Jen Hyman has only recently been opening up about that. But her story begins just after she graduates college and gets a job working as a junior analyst for the hotel company, Starwood. About a year into my time at Starwood, when I was 22, I had this thesis that we had entered the experience economy. And people were getting married later and starting to value experiences like travel over owning things. And so I had an idea at the time to launch the first honeymoon registry in the world, 
Hmm. where couples could register for their honeymoons and their friends and family could contribute by, you know, paying for scuba diving or paying for a massage or a hotel night as opposed to buying them pots and pans. So as a 22-year-old, I was really passionate about this idea. I emailed the president of Starwood and I pitched him on this idea to start a wedding business at hmm. Starwood where the cornerstone of it would be with the first honeymoon registry. Just stop for a sec. First of all, you're 22. I mean, that's 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 incredibly precocious. But was there anybody around you who was like, hey, stay in your lane? Or, you know, was there anybody who was trying to tell you to uh, keep your, you know, keep quiet? Oh, yeah. Several bosses of mine huh. were telling me to keep quiet and one of the experiences that really impacted me was I had a female boss. And at the time, I think she was like 35 or 36. Mm -hmm. So kind of about my age right now. And I would often raise my hand in meetings and speak and make points. And I remember her grabbing me after a meeting one day and she said, you know, Jen, I really want to give you some feedback. It's really important for your career. And I said, oh, you know, I'd love to hear what's your feedback. And she said, you really need to shut up. Wow. You're a girl and it would be much more becoming if you acted sweet in conversations because, you know, you're, you're too confident, you're too bold, and it's coming across the wrong way. And of course, I didn't really know how to take this. I mean, I don't even know how I would take this today, let alone as a 22-year-old. I started hysterically crying. I was in the middle of like an open floor plan. And a more senior man saw me I literally credit this guy for my entire career. He took me aside, and because I didn't even understand office politics at the time and, like, what I should and shouldn't say, I kind of just blurted out, oh, my God, like, this woman just told me X, Y, and Z, and I repeated the entire conversation to him. And he said, you know, Jen, you keep doing what you're doing because that woman's going to be working for you one day. Wow. And he, in a sense, gave me permission to just act like myself. And who I was as a 22-year-old is the same person as who I am today. It's the person who had a creative idea about the experience economy, and I wanted to share it. So what did you end up doing with the, with the idea? I mean, you, you pitched this to the, to the president of Starwood. Yeah. I think he thought I was so a little bit crazy yeah. for going and, and pitching to him that his response was like, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. Hmm. And I took that as a yes. Wait, he, he said, he didn't say yes. He just sort of said, yeah, that's interesting. And you went back to your, your desk and you started to map out how this could happen? I started to work on it. I spent the next three years working on it. And, you know, Starwood still participates in the honeymoon registry to this day. And wow has taken it to a whole other level since I left. But it was such a fun experience for me to A, work on something that I loved and was passionate about, and B, be part of the process of creation. So you were obviously on the fast track to, like if you were still Starwood today, you might be running the place. I mean, you were doing this at such a young age. Why did you decide to leave after after a couple of years? Well, 
I always thought that I would go to business school. Both of my parents had gone to business school. And so I thought that the track was you work for four years between college and then you go to business school. So when I was at Starwood for three plus years, I applied to business school and I got into Harvard Business School. So here, here's a question for you about, because we're going to get, I want to ask you about, of course, what happened at business school, which is key and critical to Rent the Runway. But, you know, the vast majority of the of the entrepreneurs that have been on this show did not go to business school. And you had all this incredible experience and you were really ambitious and you were entrepreneurial already. Um, why did you think you needed to, to go to business school? Well, first, I have always had big dreams for my career, but I didn't exactly know what those dreams were. You know, Sarah Blakely was a guest on your program, and she's someone who has always been an inspiration to me. I remember being a younger girl and seeing her on Oprah, and she had this amazing business, but she also, like, seemed like a real person who cared about getting married and having kids and having friends and having a social life. And that was really important to me. I was still fearful that you had to make a choice between having an incredible career as a woman or having a family. And I've always wanted both. So in a sense, going to business school was a chance for you to really think those things through? To think it through, to get that kind of extra potentially stamp of approval that I thought that I needed. I had lots of opportunities that I could go into different kinds of companies in different fields, but I really wanted the time to think about, like, where do I want to spend my time? Like, what am I most passionate about? Yeah. You, um, while you were at, at Harvard Business School, you met the person who had become the co-founder of Rent the Runway, um, Jennifer Fleiss. Yes. How did you, uh, how'd you guys meet? So it's a really funny story. My sister Becky, uh, prior to me going to business school, put a post-it note on my pillow one night with Jenny Fleiss's maiden name on it, which was Jenny Carter. And she said that you have to meet this girl when you go to business school because a friend of a friend of hers knew Jenny Carter. And my response to Becky at the time was, you know, I'll meet her if I meet her. Needless to say, Jenny was one of the first people I met at Harvard Business School because we were placed in the same section. Because her name had been on a post-it note for me, I was like, oh my God, you'll never believe this. Like my sister told me we need to be friends. Wow. And we became really fast friends and, you know, the rest is history. And at what point did you say, let's do a business together when we leave this place? So we were friends. We actually threw our birthdays together um, in September of that second year of business school. And in November of the second year of business school, I went home for Thanksgiving and I was in Becky's apartment. And Becky had just gone to a store and bought a dress uh, that was higher cost than her rent. And as her responsible older sister, I was remarking how she should probably wear one of the dresses in her closet again, as opposed to being in credit card debt. And her response to me was, you know, everything in my closet is dead to me. I've been photographed in it. The photographs are up on Facebook and I need something new. 
And, you know, Becky was a 25-year-old, like, normal girl who lived in New York. She wasn't a celebrity. But she was talking about being photographed and not being able to wear something again. And I, it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized I was having a conversation with my sister about the experience of wearing an amazing dress, of walking into a party, feeling self-confident and feeling beautiful. And that's what she cared about. And she didn't care about the actual ownership of the items in her closet. The other thing she cared about was the photograph that would exist after the party that she could post on Facebook and kind of share with everyone she knew how awesome she felt and how confident she felt at that wedding. So anyway, this idea happened on a Saturday night. I go back to school on Monday. I happened to have lunch that day with Jenny. We were talking about our weekends. I was like, oh, I had this idea. Like, what if we rented dresses? Yeah. And she responded, oh, this sounds fun. You know, let's like work on this idea together. Who do you think we should call to figure out if it's a good idea? And I said, you know, we should really call Diane von Furstenberg. <laughs> and the uh, like the famous fashion designer. <laughs> Jenny said, do you know Diane von Furstenberg? Yeah. And I said, obviously, I don't know Diane von Furstenberg, but we could probably figure out her email address. You could at this point figure out anyone's email address in the entire world. Right. So Jenny and I wrote an email that afternoon to many different versions of Diane von Furstenberg's email address. And we basically said, hey, we're, we're two women at Harvard Business School. We have an idea. Uh, we'd love to come in and talk to you about it. And this is where luck plays into the situation because she or someone from her office opened that email. She responded, I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Tomorrow at 5 p.m.? Yep, and we drove down to New York that next day, put on our DVF dresses, and walked into her office and introduced ourselves as the co-founders of Rent the Runway. You had the name at that point? You came up with a name? Yeah, we just, we did everything very quickly. Now, we didn't really have a structured idea. So, you know, we were kind of iterating the idea by pitching it. And the initial idea, actually, which, you know, we've never really told, the initial idea was what if we could rent the dresses that she is selling on her website? So what if we powered rental for her on DVF.com? Ah. And... You know, when we went to chat with her, she was not too thrilled about the idea of <laughs> renting clothes in general <laughs> and thought that it would cannibalize her her retail sales and it would dilute her brand. And she was ready to end the meeting with us after a few minutes. And I started asking her questions about what she disliked about the idea, what was she scared about. And by the end of what was almost a, you know, hour and a half conversation, we learned that a lot of her customers were in their 50s and 60s. And that if we were to build a business that could make her relevant to put her products into the hands of women in their teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, that that might be interesting to her and she might want to work hmm. with us. So was was she warm? Was she nice? Were you guys nervous? I mean, you're, you're still business school students. I mean, I, I can't imagine like what that would feel like to walk into that room and, and try to you know keep her attention and get her excited. 
Well, it's a funny story. So at that first meeting, I've always learned, you know, when you're in the first meeting, schedule the second meeting. So when we were in the first meeting, we scheduled a conversation for a few weeks later with her. Fast forward a few weeks and we're driving to the meeting. And we get a call while we're in the car from her assistant. And we're on the West Side Highway. We're about 40 blocks from her office. And her assistant calls and says, Diane no longer wants to see you. Hmm. And I said, oh, you know, well, we're on our way. We'll just come in and say hi. And her assistant's like, no, she really doesn't want to see you. Like, she's not interested in this idea. And I said, oh, yeah, um, we're just around the corner. Like, we'll, we'll just drop by for a second. And again, her assistant very firmly said, she doesn't want to see you. What do you not understand? And I said, oh, we're cutting off. We're cutting off. And I hung up. And then I sped down the West Side Highway and we were at her office and we just showed up. Wait, most people in that situation would have just been like, crushed would have felt so dejected like I know I know I would and would have just said well forget it forget Diane let's just move on how, how did you not feel that how did you how were you able to just say we're going we're just gonna do this we're gonna walk in there well Jenny initially was actually started to cry and was a little bit upset about the situation like which most I think is the people would yeah which I think is the much more natural reaction yes. and I was like, we're just going to do this. What do we have to lose? Like, what's the worst thing in the world? We show up and she doesn't meet us? What if you walked in there and they were like, security, please escort these women out? Great. (laughs) Then we have a story that we could tell all of our friends. When we come back, what actually happened when Jen and Jenny finally showed up at Diane von Furstenberg's office? I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair chance hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com slash NPR. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So before the break, Jen was talking about how she and her co-founder, Jenny, basically busted into Diane von Furstenberg's office to have a second meeting. And amazingly, Diane agreed to meet with them. And in fact, she wound up giving them some pretty good advice. Actually, that was the meeting where she told us, you know, I don't want you to do this on my website. 
you are going to have to sell this idea to other designers and get lots of people on board if I'm going to do this too. So in a sense, in that meeting, she gave us permission to make it a consumer-facing business and to approach the rest of the industry. Wow. So, so, I mean, it sounds like she she kind of rewrote your business plan right right there. Yeah. So, so did you walk out of her office with like names or, or contacts, or did you just walk out of the, her, her her office t- saying, "All right, cool. This is this is clarifying. We now know where to head next." Well, we did ask her for some introductions, and I think that she introduced us to one or two people in the industry. We then would meet with those people, and we'd ask them for introductions, and so on and so forth. But we continued to just cold call people. So one of the next people that I cold called was the president of Neiman Marcus <laughs> um, because he was both a HBS alum, so I had access to his email address. And I thought that, you know, if this whole Rent the Runway thing falls through, like, maybe I could work for Jim Gold at Neiman Marcus. And what did he say? He said, yeah. This is a really good idea. Women have been renting the runway from my stores for decades. It's called buying something, keeping the tags on, and then returning it to the store. (laughs) Which probably costs them millions of dollars. Yeah, it's kind of the dirty secret of retail. The the return rate, especially of dresses and and special occasion attire, is extremely high. Can I just pause for a second and ask this question, which is, so I'm wearing the outfit I'm wearing today. Like, I've worn this in the last few days. Uh, I have no shame about it. And obviously, there's different society has different standards for men and women. But but what is this about? Like, what's this thing where where women feel like they can't wear the same dress at, at you know two different functions? I really think that there's a value that women place on self-expression and that clothes make you feel a certain way about yourself. You put on an amazing outfit in the morning and it makes you feel powerful or beautiful or sexy or relaxed or however you want to feel that day. There's just a general value in our society right now around individuality and self-expression. And so the way that you're going to achieve that with fashion is via variety. So I had seen at the time, and it's even more true today, that the way that women were accessing variety and individuality was through fast fashion and off price. Hmm. Because the only place that you could buy a quantity of items was at a place that was selling them for a very cheap price. Like Forever 21 or H&M. Exactly. So I think that when you don't have to buy something, it allows you to try new things, to constantly be playful, to experiment, to try things that are in colors or in trends or, you know, different kinds of styles that you never would purchase because they're irrational. So with Rent the Runway, it's like a Willy Wonka land of fashion. You could have whatever you want whenever you want it. Let's say you have a job interview, you have a party, you have a wedding you're going to. You're saying, I want it to arrive at my home on September 15th, and I'm going to wear it and use it for a few days, and then I'm going to return it. And it's about 10% of the retail price. Hmm. So how did you know for sure that, you know, that women would be interested in, in like, doing this? I mean, did you, did you guys do any research? No, we never did research in an academic sense. We did real-life research, which was we went to Bloomingdale's. We bought about 100 dresses, all in our own sizes so that if this whole experiment didn't work out, we would have an awesome new wardrobe. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of our savings on this and we hosted a pop-up at Harvard undergrad 
and we invited different groups of Harvard undergrads to the pop-up. And the idea behind this was to learn, A, will women rent dresses? B, what do they rent? How much will they pay? What brands do they want? And most importantly, if they do rent, what happens to these garments after they rent? Yeah. Do they get destroyed? Right. Um, can you send them through the mail? How do you dry clean these items? And so on and so forth. This is like still like, I mean, today this seems like a no brainer, but this is what, 2008, 2009? This, our first pop-up was in April 2009. So, I mean, at that time, Netflix was like mailing DVDs to the mail. So that was going on. I guess Zappos, you could get shoes and you could mail them back. But it was still, it wasn't like what it is now. I mean, it was still new. It was. And it feels both so long ago and also yesterday. So you got the the, the sense right away that this that this could work because these, these undergraduates, these, these women were like, yeah, I want to rent this. I got the sense that it would work because I saw the emotional effect hmm. So in this pop-up, I saw girls, you know, stripping down, trying on these amazing dresses and feeling beautiful. Yeah. And you saw their facial expressions change and they threw their shoulders back and they tousled their hair and they walked with a new sense of confidence. And, you know, I really thought, wow, this could be a business that isn't just about offering her a rational or smart choice, but it also can be a business that is delivering something emotional to her, making her feel beautiful every single day. Jen, a, a lot of founders choose to do it on their own, like you know, like Gary Erickson from Cliff Bar, or even Sarah Blakely from Spanx. I mean, she, she owns a hundred percent of her company, but. You guys went for venture capital pretty quickly, pretty early on. Why? We had to raise money because we needed to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory to even launch a business or to assess whether it was a viable idea. And I don't come from a family that has hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings especially, you know, savings that they're going to invest in their daughter's crazy idea. And so when you were pitching venture capitalists, how much money were you looking to raise in, in that first round? We raised $1.75 million. Wow. So, I mean, with that money, what could you do? I guess build a website, right? You could buy initial inventory in various size runs with some depth because we knew we needed many different designers. We needed a selection, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't going to come and start renting if there were only five units of inventory on the site. We could hire some people. We could launch a website. That was about it. And take photos of the dresses and put them on the website. Yeah, that's another funny story. Until two weeks before the website launched, we didn't realize that we would have to take photos of the inventory. <laughs> we thought, of course, in this industry, there's some centralized place yeah. that takes photos of this. How ridiculous is it that every retailer would have to photograph this inventory over and over again? Needless to say, we, we figure out like right before the website's meant to launch that we have no photos. And we put together a, an impromptu photo shoot where we found a photographer on Craigslist who ended up working with Rent the Runway for six years. Wow. And we bring our own shoes and our own accessories to this photo shoot and 
our, you know, initial team of five employees and many interns at the time kind of figure out how to do it. So once you launch, how do you get the word out? How do you, how, how do you get people to even know what this is? Hustling. So what was the hustle? The hustle was we wanted to build a list of as many women as possible. You know, the Sex in the City movie had come out that summer, and we would go to movie theaters with women who were attending that movie, and we would get their email addresses. We would convince friends to send us email addresses of other friends of theirs. So, like, we were really doing anything and everything. So one of the names that was on this list that we had built at Run the Runway had a at NewYorkTimes.com. And... I was like, oh, like there's someone who works at the New York Times on this email address. And I looked her up and I saw that she was a 22-year-old technology reporter. I was like, oh, let's invite her in. Maybe she could write about Run the Runway. So we met with her and we decided we were going to give her a story. And I thought that if Jenny and I were photographed for this article, potentially we could be on the front page of the business section. If, If there was a photo of the two of you. Yes, because it was a technology reporter and no women are ever covered in the technology section. Yeah. So I say to this reporter, oh, maybe, you know, you should maybe you could take a photograph of us at the quote unquote warehouse, which was a dry cleaner at the time. So we put on like these crazy dresses and we showed up when the photographer uh, showed up to the dry cleaner. And we stood on ladders and we told the photographer to take a photo of us on ladders in front of kind of the array of of dresses that were on the kind of dry cleaning machine. And because the photo was so utterly absurd, it ended up on the front page of the business section and the headline A1 photo on nytimes.com. So we had 100,000 people sign up for Rent the Runway off of that story. Wow. So you had, did you all of a sudden have people making orders? Yes. Did you have the inventory to handle all the orders? No. So what'd you do? We raised more money. So because of, of hustling to get this story and the luck of ending up on the front page of the New York Times, we met our first year sales projections in three weeks. And we had a clamoring of venture capital investors who were kind of coming into our office pitching us on Series A. So we got we had gone from, you know, a very undesirable investment to like people showing up at the elevator in our building to meet with us unannounced wow. because they wanted to pounce on the deal. Did you, I mean, bo- both you and, and Jenny um, are, you know, unfortunately still rare in, in the startup world in that you're, you're two women um, leading a huge company. And, and But at the time when you were raising money, did you ever get the sense from venture capitalists who presumably most were mostly men that, I don't know, they were like a little bit dismissive or condescending or, you know, I don't know, treat you differently? Yeah, we had several different very condescending conversations, one in which a partner at a very prestigious firm took my hand into his and he said, you know, this is so adorable. Hmm. You're going to get to wear such pretty dresses. This must be so fun for you. How did you react? 
We both froze a little bit. Yeah. Um, I th- we were very polite, hmm. and we walked out and we said, you know, thanks for the feedback. Now, of course, we never <laughs> interacted with this firm or this investor again. We never pitched them on any subsequent round. We were like kind of good riddance to these people. So there's an element of, you know, we ha- we had access to capital. We had choices because the business was growing, and that's a privilege. I read in, in an article about you that one investor said something like, "Oh, you know, let me let me talk to my wife about about this idea." Well, that's something that we heard all the time. Huh. That wasn't one investor; that was most. Hmm. Let me talk to my wife, my daughter, or my admin. Those were hmm. the three, you know target customers that we would hear. And let me tell you why each is problematic. Number one, the wife of a venture capitalist is a billionaire. So the wife of a venture capitalist (laughs) is not my target customer. Right. The daughter of a venture capitalist in most cases is about 12 because most venture capitalists are, when they're in the prime of their careers, they're kind of 45 to 50. So, you know, their daughter is not a great target either. And their admin, the admins who work in the venture capital industry, because it's such a prestigious job, are often women who are in their 50s and 60s. Again, not women who were in my target demo. So we would preempt that by showing videos and inviting these investors to some of our pop-ups, show them who the customer was so that they really got a sense for who we were catering to. There's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, attention recently to um, to the the broish culture of of venture capital in Silicon Valley and um, and how women are are finally you know publicly being able to come out and talk more about their experiences. Um, did you experience some of that culture in in this process? I through the process of building Rent the Runway was sexually harassed. Um, by one individual, and I'm happy to share that experience. H- however, I will say that I've had interactions with dozens and dozens of venture capitalists at dozens of firms, and this was just one individual. So the far, far, far majority of my interactions have been incredibly positive, but I was in a situation once where I was kind of propositioned, sent sexual text messages. This is why you were um, trying to raise money for Rent the Runway? While I was building the company, yes, from someone in the investor community. Was sending you text messages like, let's go on a date or whatever it was? That and things that are more explicit than that. Were you shocked to, 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 to get those? I was. I thought that it was inappropriate and and fairly bizarre given that it was happening over text message. So there was evidence created. Now there was also, you know, conversations that were happening in person that were also threatening and very bizarre. Yeah. Did you just ignore it? Was there anything you could have, did you feel like you couldn't really do anything about it except just ignore it? So I initially ignored it and that was the plan. I was planning on ignoring it and, you know, decided, you know, I was going to keep it silent. Hmm. And then this person 
decided to call one of my board members up on the phone and say, you know, Jen never responds to me. <laughs> and I think that this is a real problem. And she's a really unresponsive CEO. And she's probably, if she's doing this to me, she's probably doing this to other people. And he really challenged my behavior as a CEO. Wow. And actually, that board member came into my office to give me feedback and say, I need to be more responsive, which was my instantaneous reaction was, oh, my God, I can't believe that this person, after being rejected by making these sexual advances, is now trying to ruin my career. In just a minute, how Jen handled that very tricky situation. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and just one more thing before we get back to the show. We still have a few tickets left for our upcoming live show in L.A. on December 5th at the Ace Theater. It's with Michael Dubin. He's the co-founder of Dollar Shave Club. And it's an amazing story of how he turned that into a billion-dollar company. And if you haven't been to a live show, they are so much fun. It's a chance to meet me and meet the team behind the show and also a chance to meet your fellow HIBT listeners. So if you want to get a ticket, go to nprpresents.org. The show is supported by American Express, and I hope to see you there. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So in those early days of Rent the Runway, Jen Hyman faced the situation where one of her investors was harassing her. And when she ignored his advances... He took it out on her. He actually complained about her to a member of her board. And so when that board member asked Jen about it, she decided to be totally transparent about what was going on. I, I showed this board member the text messages at that time and basically, you know, asked my board member how, how they'd like me to respond. What did the board member say? I mean, the board member was shocked. I bet. And... I proceeded to tell everyone else on my board, as well as some key executives who were working with me at Rent the Runway at the time. And the board was unbelievably supportive. And we decided that we were not going to do business anymore with this individual or his firm. Wow. So there's that form of sexual harassment. And I think that that's a lot of what's been getting recent media coverage. Yeah. And hopefully, by nature of a lot of very brave women speaking out right now, that sort of sexual harassment will be stamped out of the industry. And one way that I think over time that it needs to be stamped out is by diversifying the sources of capital, making sure that 50 percent of investors are women. Mm. But let's put that aside just for a second. The second form of sexual harassment slash gender discrimination is way more subtle and it's way more difficult to prove. But for instance, overall, I have seen male founders 
receive, you know, sometimes more mentorship or more chances to be successful. They get more strikes against them before their investors kind of pull the plugs. And in a lot of cases, women are only given, you know, it's a one striker, you're out as the CEO and founder. Um, There are situations where I've now come to understand that a lot of how deals get done and how companies, let's say, get acquired is someone is saying something like, oh, you should really meet this guy. He's a visionary. Hmm. He's incredible. You should get to know him. And I think across the board, more of those comments are being made about male entrepreneurs than they are about female entrepreneurs. We as a society feel uncomfortable using the words visionary or brilliant to describe women. (laughs) That's not always intentional. I think it's just ingrained in people. I would say in, in, in a lot of different instances, people have actually genuinely been trying to be helpful to me. Like there was a time early in my career where an investment firm, you know, said to me, oh, Jen, you know, you should really meet these other entrepreneurs. They're around your your own age. They're brilliant. You could learn a lot from them. They're building incredible companies. They're going to change the world. Now, all of those entrepreneurs were men and they were kind of prefaced as being geniuses, brilliant, etc. And this same firm never introduced me in that same way to those yeah. same entrepreneurs, even though we were at similar tenure and similar stages in our company. The irony is a lot of those guys, their businesses, you know, aren't around anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the one who's still chugging. Now, I don't think that they were trying to be intentionally sexist. It's just that there's a shade to which we all operate that puts women at a bit of a disadvantage. Yeah. It's really amazing. I mean, you it, it, it speaks to the this like perception of, of power dynamics that, that's so prevalent in in the in the venture world. I think that those power dynamics exist in so many different industries. Yeah. And I don't think that it's just a Silicon Valley or technology problem. And that's why I think that the more egregious sending you a text message in the middle of the night asking to sleep with you sort of sexual harassment hopefully can be stamped out via just being more vocal about it. I think, though, that the more subtle form of harassment slash discrimination or just lack of opportunity is actually the harder problem to solve. It's the more pernicious problem. It's the reason why only 4% of venture capital dollars are going towards women and, you know, very, very few investors are women. So, you know, we need to fundamentally diversify who has access to power, who has access to capital in order to get a diversity of ideas and entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, and, and you obviously you have had incredible success despite the challenges that that you faced and that women in 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 tech face. And as you sort of began to develop as a leader, as a CEO, how did you how did you sort of make that transition? How did you figure out how to you know manage lots of people? I think that it is a continuous work in progress. Hmm. I had never managed people across the diversity of functions that we have at Rent the Runway. You know, Rent the Runway is primarily a technology and logistics company. Yeah. We have 1,200 employees. Ten employees are in my fashion department. <laughs> and, you know, 
Hundreds are in my logistics department. Hundreds are in my engineering department. And these are areas in which I had had no experience. And, you know, one thing that I've learned is that leadership evolves over time. First of all, being a leader of a 1,200-person company is different than being a leader of a 100-person company. And so I have to really evolve, even though I've had the same title for eight plus years, like there are so many things that, you know, I've done wrong along the way. And I think that the thing that has made me grow and develop is the recognition of failure and the desire to improve and the desire to get better. I don't want people to have the impression that this was all, you know, you just fleeted from success to success and it was easy and there were no low points because there there have been like with any company and and in 2015 you got some some tough press about some people who left the company there were quotes in newspapers calling it a a, a mean culture and and um and things like that from from some of these employees who left. Did that were you hurt by reading that stuff? Some people were criticizing you and and your and your management style and leadership. It was the most difficult experience of my life actually. Hmm. It was such a difficult time because as a woman there's two things they could really call you as a woman. They yeah. could call you the B word. Right. Or they could say you're an idiot. And I've never really had a, had a fear of someone calling me an idiot. But I do value myself for how I treat others. So to be called mean and to, you know, be quoted as having a mean girl's culture at the company was so unsettling and sad and horrible to me because it's the thing that's the most important to me. You know... What had been happening at the time was the company was going through a quite painful and difficult transition from being a, you know, one phase of a startup to trying to develop some sense of entering our our teen years or our adolescent years. And I started to realize that I needed to make the tough calls and fire some people. That was very unsettling to people because we give men permission as leaders and as CEOs to make the tough choices. Yeah. You know, with women, we don't give them as much permission to make those tough decisions. And we often, when when we do make those decisions, we're often labeled as the B word or, you know, et cetera. So it certainly was a low point, but... It led to the biggest outpourings of support I've ever had. It led to more courage around my own decision-making because I led the company into the best place it's ever been. Yeah. And in a sense, it makes the future less scary. Yeah. Because that article or a version of it, it will come out again. And the next time it comes out, it's just not going to have the same impact on me. You mentioned earlier in the interview how you always wanted to 
run a successful company and, and or start a successful company, but also have a family and, and a kid. And uh, and you did that. You you have a child and a, and a partner. And how, how have you f- figured out how to to do it in the way you wanted to do it? Well, first of all, let's backtrack to being 28 and having the idea for Rent the Runway. And I yeah. just want to tell the real story here because I think that a lot of women go through this and, and they don't talk about it. One of the major considerations that I had in starting Rent the Runway was, is this a smart idea for me? Because if Rent the Runway is successful, will I ever be able to get married? (laughs) I was always confident that I would turn Rent the Runway into a consumer behavior that millions of people did and that I would build a, you know, I I still believe we're going to build a multi-billion dollar company. But... At the very, very beginning, when Rent the Runway launched, I had been dating someone from Harvard Business School who I was very much in love with. And the day that Rent the Runway came out and we were on the front page of the New York Times, he broke up with me shortly thereafter. And he told me that he realized that he didn't want to be with his equal. Wow. So that was really sad and disheartening because I was very in love with this person. Hmm. And and that's what led into this fear. Now, it ended up that this fear was completely unfounded and I had no issues, you know, falling in love while building Rent the Runway. I just think that it it paralyzed me because the number one priority in my life has always been having a family and having kids. So... The amount of happiness that I have now, having a daughter, I just got back from maternity leave last week. I'm engaged to the love of my life. I can't even describe to you the level of joy that it brings into my life on a daily basis to truly have all of my dreams have come true. I guess last year you guys had... um... You, you, you became profitable, which I should point out is very is ex- exceedingly rare so quickly. Um, and I mean, your revenue is over $100 million, according to public reports. The valuation of the company is, I don't even know what it is. Do you know what it is? I do know what it but is. But you can't say what it is. Yes. But it's it's probably higher than you ever imagined. Even though it, it, it may still be on paper, this thing that you built, that you and, and and Jenny built, has made both of you rich. I mean, you are, even though it may just be on paper, you are rich. You're a rich person. You did not grow up that way. Well, being rich on paper is very different <laughs> than being rich in reality. So yeah. let's talk in a few years. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because I didn't grow up saying I want to found a company. I had this idea for Rent the Runway. I saw that it was mission-driven. I saw that it was driving self-confidence and making women feel incredible about themselves. And I knew that I had to commit my life to that. And I'm really proud that we have had many different women leave Rent the Runway and then raise their own venture capital and start their own companies and go after their own dreams. And Jenny and I, two years ago, decided to start a foundation where we've raised millions of dollars to support other female entrepreneurs scaling their companies. And we've now helped thousands of women throughout the United States in scaling their organizations. So, this mission of 
empowering women and making women feel confident is the actual thing that I care about. Now, if it happens to be that Rent the Runway brings me the ability to provide for my family and thank my parents, that would be wonderful. But honestly, if it amounts to nothing, it is the absolute best experience of my life and I would do it over a million times. Jen Hyman, founder of Rent the Runway. By the way, her co-founder, Jennifer Fleiss, recently left the company. It was amicable. Both Jen and Jennifer each own 13% of the company, and it's put them on Forbes' list of the richest self-made women to watch. Rent the Runway isn't just profitable. It's also become America's single largest dry cleaner. Dresses from 500 different designers, including, though it took a while to convince her, Diane von Furstenberg. And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, MailChimp. MailChimp does so much more than email, they've outgrown their name. With automation, ad campaigns, and audience management, MailChimp could help your business outgrow its name too. Not just mail, MailChimp. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for how you built that. And today we're going to update a story we ran a while back with Monica Mizrachi in San Diego, California. And her story starts a few years ago when her daughter Leah was packing to go overseas on a gap year program. She was going to be traveling to 14 different countries, which meant that she was going to be living out of a suitcase. So we needed to find a system where she would be very organized in her travels to be able to survive out of a suitcase pretty much for the year. Okay, if this were me or maybe even you, you know, we could just throw a bunch of clothes into a suitcase and forget about it. But Monica, she is incredibly organized. I was a mathematician in college, and I was always very into order. Like, in math, there's one solution. But when it came to packing... I just couldn't find the system we tried... With Ziploc bags, we tried many other packing cubes, but you couldn't see your things. And I wanted to turn a suitcase into a set of drawers. And what Monica came up with was a modular set of clear, squishy plastic cubes that you could stack inside a suitcase and pull out by a handle. When you open your suitcase, you can see everything in your suitcase. And eventually, Monica ran into a friend at a barbecue who happened to work with factories in China. So, of course, she showed him her plans. Then he says, this looks really interesting. And he took it to China and he made a prototype for me. I told him I wanted clear, I wanted the piping, I wanted to have a handle. And he made the first prototype. Soon after that, Monica scraped together some money and placed an order for 14,000 of these packing cubes. And a few months later, a truck driver pulled up in front of her house. I thought I was getting maybe 50 boxes or something. We had a 20-foot container full of boxes. And I'm like, oh my God, what did we do? And that was the precise moment when Monica realized she'd forgotten one very crucial detail. She had not gotten the word out about the packing cubes. No, I didn't have a single client. I hadn't sold a single cube. Fortunately, her son Solomon had studied business and marketing in college. And so he stepped in and he said, Mom. He said, we are going to work really hard. We're going to put it online and we're going to sell it. So Solomon started to email mommy bloggers about the cubes, and one of them posted it on Pinterest. And sure enough, he says, We just got, you know, 
six or seven orders and like that was a big deal at the time that was like wow like this is working you know <laughs> and he actually liked the idea so much that solomon bought the company from his mom and he called it easy packing now she still helps out with the accounting and her husband does the legal work and her other kids help out too but solomon he now does the bulk of the work you know what it's been an amazing honor to work with my son i never thought i would work with my son if it hadn't been for him, I would not have been able to do it. That's Monica Mizrachi of Easy Packing. Today, her son Solomon and his fiance run the company full-time, but Monica still helps out. And since we first ran this story, they've expanded to selling in Europe and have basically doubled their business, selling over 10,000 packing cubes in the past year alone. If you want to learn more about Easy Packing or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write us directly at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at howibuiltthis. Our show is produced this week by Rund Abdel Fattah with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Lawrence Wu, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Mia Venkat. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast.